0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu.
1: Hey, hey, I'm Brittany Luce, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. A show where I look at what's happening in culture and why it doesn't happen by accident. So a few weeks back, I made an offhand comment about how he who should not be named, aka Drake, had devolved into this depressed, mopey, vindictive rap state and how I was officially done. A lot of you reached out saying you were done too. Boy, bye. And Drake isn't alone. We're going to get into this more in a minute, but gosh, the boys in rap are sounding sad. Meanwhile, the girls in rap are killing it. They're killing it so hard that finally, the women are crashing the usually male-dominated rap nominations for the Grammys.
2: Mm -hmm,
1: They have the beats, they have the hits, and they have something to say. I would like to address a certain incident that I'm sure is on everybody's mind. No, I don't know why Popeye's took the hottie sauce off the menu. <laughs> <laughs> and, Hines, if you want the sauce back, you need to take that up with the Popeye's lady,
2: not me, okay?
1: And my next guest, Sarita Singleton, and her collaborator, Issa Rae, have been watching. And they worked together to make the Mac series, which we'll call Rap-ish. The real name of this show has a word in it that I'll get fined for saying on the radio. Rap-ish is all about these two Miami girls, Shauna and Mia, who end up forming a rap duo. <laughs> okay, okay. Just there, ah. deuce, it's loosely based on the success of the rap duo City Girls, two of my favorite rap girlies who are killing it right now. Which, excuse me, where is their Grammy? Anyway... The show gets deep into how Black women are treated in the music industry. No, wait. we should start a rap group. Man, come on. Man, y'all, we better start a come rap group. On, and man. of course, man, I'm going to be the pretty like, how It's fun. It's way. funny. It's very real. And I have been loving the show's careful observations and big critiques. Today, I'm getting into all of that and more with the showrunner of the series, Sarita Singleton. Sarita, welcome to It's Been a Minute.
2: Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for welcoming me. I'm so happy to be here.
1: Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. We're excited for it too. I I enjoyed the first season of what we'll call rap-ish. I enjoyed the first season of rap-ish. I have gotten to see some of the second season. I've been loving it. I think that one of the things that is the most interesting to me about the show is that it's like capturing the moment that hip hop is in right now. In my personal opinion, and I think this is something that other people have noticed as well, it seems kind of like a lot of male rappers are in this like depressed, paranoid kind of state. This is not the party good time music.
2: What happened? What happened? We need Um, T-Pain back. (laughs) Exactly. Please bring T-Pain
1: back. But I I kind of do, I, I feel like there's a little opportunity there though, and that it kind of leaves a lot of the women to have all the fun. And- I love that the show really is capturing this moment as well. What is compelling about this moment to you as a writer? And and how do you hope to bring that to life on the show?
2: Oh, I mean, well, first of all, I'm just, as a woman, as a Black woman, and as mm-hmm. a fan of hip hop, like I was just excited and watching along with everyone else as Cardi made her debut. Yes. And then it's like, oh my God, now we have two? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Nikki and Cardi? Yeah. And then the City Girls and all these like kind of really organic moments were happening online where you're discovering all of this new music. Mm-hmm. We're seeing art be discovered on social media. We're seeing people be defined by numbers right now in a way that is like, you know, what works? What goes viral? Like, right. imagine figuring out who you are, building a brand, building a career based off of like how many people join your live right. based off right. of what you say and what you share and how unhinged you are. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We
1: all kind of interact with it to a certain degree, but it does take on a very specific place on the show. The show often uses like phone screens and social media. You know, characters look at social media or watch or film something, or the frame will actually have us feel like we're looking at a live stream actually unfolding right then. And I like that as... A device because it kind of shows the fault line between the hustle and success. Like the characters sometimes show one side of things for social media, like, oh, look at our tour bus, for instance, with this season. The girls are on tour. Look at our tour bus. This is so nice. But then when they're staying in the raggedy hotel room (laughs) that might have roaches and bed bugs, they're not going to post that to social. I wonder, is there like a commentary in there about the way that the music industry works?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. There's a um a photo or like a meme that I've seen online sometimes where it's like you see the person holding the camera in their backdrop, Mm -hmm. but on the floor there's like chips and like you know my clothes from yesterday, phone cords, all of that stuff, (laughs) and it's just what you want people to see versus like the reality of a situation, and that's something that we really wanted to show. Because we want to show like how gritty it is, like how rough it is and like those mm. kind of sacrifices that you have to make. And so you'll see that there there are less moments of them pulling out the phone because it's just like they are very protective of like what the fans think, that people think they've made it. Right. I'm on tour. Like, you know what I mean? And then just the yeah. idea of what tour is. is right. like
1: It's glamorous.
2: It sounds very glamorous, but it's like you're the opener to the opener. And like... <laughs> right. You're not being paid anything and you are sleeping in a tiny bunk with like no food. So, you know what I mean? Like, people don't know that, like that that hustle.
1: Y'all really get into the dirty underbelly of the music industry as they're breaking into it. As you said, it's not glamorous at all. Israe, who created this show, she's made comments to the tune of, you know, The music industry is the worst business she's ever come across, even more so than Hollywood. In thinking about the tour specifically, underhanded dealings, shady dealings in the music industry is nothing new, but the way that you all show it this season through the tour specifically, it really exposes a lot of the racism, colorism, misogyny, and sexism that real life artists and Black women in the music industry have to deal with. And and I appreciate that because you all do a great job of showing and not just telling me as the viewer about those aspects of the business. What was your team's approach to depicting that and the effect that it can have on black women in music?
2: You spoke earlier to like how depressed so many of the like male rappers seem. It's so drug fueled, and mm-hmm. it's like, hey, let's just throw them into this world. So mm-hmm. we hit those themes really hard in those first, yeah. you know, tour episode, even for some of the most notable artists. Like I think about mm-hmm. Lotto and the story that she was sharing. And she never named the rapper who refused to clear their verse for her album because she wouldn't sleep with them. Right, right. The audacity. <laughs> like, you don't need the golf. <laughs> yeah, the but- audacity. It's like things like that are are still happening and they have been happening for, you know, decades. We're in 50 years of hip hop. Hmm. And I think some of the men are, they still want to maintain their like grip and their control. And it's like, and how do they do that by like Hmm. policing, undermining, exploiting?
1: One of the things that really got to me when I watched the first season of Rap-ish and again with the second season is how rare it is to see a story about women centering on their drive to realize their goals, as opposed to like find a partner. Mia and Shauna, romance is a part of their lives, but the show is really about them finding their voices as artists and figuring out how they want to work together and what they want to say with their work. And that feels really refreshing. Why was it so important to focus on that with this show? And I wonder how you relate to that. As a creative yourself, uh,
2: you know friendship between women has been like my favorite thing to write about since I discovered that I wanted to write. You know mm. that friendship or that connection that you have with your bestie, like that's where you share your dreams, your goals, your mm-hmm. fears. You know that's where you're your most vulnerable. Sometimes, I just recently came across a photo that like. My best friend, Morgan, <laughs> wrote on my whiteboard when I was maybe like 19 or 20 in college. And she mm-hmm. wrote like, keep following your dreams. They're amazing. And like, I love you so much and put like a little heart on it. And I like took a photo oh. of it. Sometimes your girlfriends are your biggest supporters. And then also like the landscape of hip hop and like supporting each other and deciding that mm. we're no longer going to beef with each other unnecessarily we're not going to let men pit us against each other sure you have your drama you have your beefing you have your fights here and there but for the <laughs> most part I think the women have really sh- like how can we coexist with one another and I think that's why we see so many like an abundance of women rappers who are all winning at the same time it's because they mm. refused to play into that
1: hmm. hmm another aspect that felt very authentic <laughs> but also just had me howling was when Shauna gets her period on the tour bus in the middle of the night. She has just looked at her phone and seen that she has less than $25 in her account. And then she's like, oh my God. And my period just started. You know, we see her trying to find a tampon and, and having to press on, just continue to move forward with her cramps and all. I knew, like I knew cognitively that this is a reality for many touring women rappers. In the back of my mind, I understood that. But seeing it depicted as the day ruiner that it sometimes can be, even for the character on this show, it just hit me in a totally different way.
2: Reality doesn't stop. Like, just because you're on tour, you're on a tour (laughs) bus. And also, I think, like, just even as women, there are a lot of women in our writer's room. We were just like, how often do you see a woman get her period on TV and have cramps? (laughs) <laughs> it happens like, all the know? time. It happens, it happens all the time. It happens to us all the time, but it's not something that like I don't know, sometimes things are a little more like depicted in a more sexy way. Like these women get periods but don't think about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> but now it's just like, oh, we want you to think about it. Like think about <laughs> think about everything she's dealing with right now.
1: Another way that I think that the show mirrors what's happening in rap is that Mia and Shauna are very empowered sexually. Women in rap these days are having quite a moment with sexual empowerment. I'm thinking of Cardi B and Meg as like the queens of this. They got back-to-back hits with WAP and Bongos. But of course, we also see it with Lotto. We see it with Sexy Red, all the other girls. And this is reflected in Shauna and Mia's music as well, but also in their life. Like the sex on the show is so well Done. The thing that I really like about it the most is that when I'm watching the scenes, I can see that it's not just about Mia or Shauna feeling desired. Also, you can see them experiencing desire. You can see them excited about what's going to happen. You can see them wanting their partner. And when you kind of compare that to some of the discourse that's happening in Hollywood around, sex scenes. You know, I feel like in some ways there's less sex on screen than I even remember when I was growing up in the 90s or 2000s, and there are people who are against it and think that it's unethical or it's too gratuitous. I wonder how you all on your team have talked about approaching the sex scenes in the writers' room and and what your philosophy behind it all has been.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a really good question. And it's funny that you're saying this because I was talking to my mom last night and my mom was literally saying like, you know, I think for sex scenes, you just got to like show the beginning of it and then just get out. Just show the kissing and then shoulder slip and then like, and then just get out. <laughs> Your mom was like, that's enough. I know that those opinions <laughs> exist and I hear them from my mom all the time. A lot of our writers room, a lot of our team, like across production are women. And so when mm. we're talking about sex and desire and how we have sex and when we have sex, like we are not at all thinking about a critique, a judgment. We're not policing ourselves. We're not pulling ourselves back. We are speaking about it as we experience it. It's not anything that I wouldn't do in my own personal life. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I'm like, good for you. That's good for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, does, but, this, yeah, does this align with my values? And it's like, yeah, it does. Hmm. So here we
1: go. <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Um. I also have really appreciated the show's approach to sexuality because. One of the main characters, Mia, is a mom. I find it exciting how the show continues to show Mia as a sexual being and having roles and desires outside of being a mother, which she enjoys. That brings me to another aspect of the show, which is the way that it depicts Mia's journey as a mother and an artist. It also reflects a very real aspect of the music industry that isn't talked about as much, despite the fact that... So many of the most popular women in rap right now are moms. Yeah. From Nikki to Cardi to. Sexy Red currently on tour right now, pregnant, doing the splits, hitting the splits. I saw her. I was like, wow. I
2: didn't see the splits,
1: but yeah. <laughs> but I Oh, saw I this. saw the splits. <laughs> I said, go ahead, girl. I'm like, if you can do that now, delivery is going to be a breeze. <laughs> but work-life balance for any mom is always going to be a thing. But in their specific situation, in Mia's specific situation, trying to balance the work, the artistry, the motherhood all at the same time, Even though there's many other women in the music industry for whom that's a reality, it still isn't talked about as much as I think that it could and should be. Why was it important to foreground that in the show?
2: I think for all the reasons that you just mentioned, but also it's my story. You know, um, I'm a Mm -hmm. mom. I'm a mom of of two boys, and I entered this industry um, around the same time as Mia. You know, Mia, our characters, we don't really talk about their ages often, but Mm -hmm. they're about 24, 25 years old. I came into this industry as a young mom, you know, trying to figure out that balance and, like, sacrificing and hoping for, like, a better future. And mm. and even when we talk about the the story of, of Mia and her arc and her experience as a mom who's just trying to, like, be better than her mother and also feed her daughter, a lot of times it feels like you've hit your expiration on your ability to dream.
3: Mm.
2: That was mm. something... Um, that we talked about a lot with season one. is like, that's what Shauna gives her. is like this permission to want more for herself. So writing her story is one that is just deeply personal for myself and for some of the other moms in the room.
1: Hmm. Well, Sarita, thank you so, so much. It has been just a joy to talk to you about this show. And I'm excited for people to see the rest of the second season.
2: Thank you, Brittany.
1: Thank you so much. That was Sarita Singleton. She's the showrunner for Max's Rappish. The second season is streaming right now. Coming up, we're staying on theme and tuning into a conversation with one of the most delightfully weird and renowned rappers of all time, Andre3000. Stick around.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's name your price tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
3: Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Next, one of the most imaginative, genre-breaking, and influential rappers of our time. The man who's in everyone's top five, Andre 3000. Like so many of us, I grew up. On Andre 3000, both his solo work and his work with OutKast. Whether we're talking Equimini, The Love Below, or even the smattering of features he's thrown at us over the past couple decades, 3000 is one of the few people I'd actually say has a perfect discography. And for the first time in 17 years, he's released new music with an album titled New Blue Sun. But longtime Andre 3000 fans may be surprised because this album has no rapping. In fact, it's mostly improvisational woodwinds. And while some might be disappointed, it's one of the freest expressions of style I've ever seen from an artist. My colleague at NPR Music, Rodney Carmichael, was lucky enough to sit down with the Andre 3000 to get the whole backstory. I'm going to hand it over to Rodney. Enjoy.
4: Andre talked to me from NPR's Culver City Studios in LA while I was at home in Atlanta. And as we were getting ready to start the interview, I could hear him in my headphones doing something he likes to do when he's just killing time. He started playing the flute. Mm -hmm. Oh man, you got to sound it nice over there. It's a good time saver, you know. Yeah, it's so warm, man. It's It's, like,
5: (laughs) oh man, thank you.
4: Yeah, uh, like I I just keep
5: it so you know you check your phone all the time. You kind of just have it in your hand and you look at your phone. It's kind of kind of the same thing. New blue sun. Mm -hmm. It's almost an hour
4: and a half in length. It's eight songs that feel orchestral and tribal and contemplative and, and transcendent, all at the same time. It feels like you're taking us to other realms, man, you know,
5: or, or at least like definitely other realms of Andre. Yeah, it, it took me to other realms to be completely honest. Like I've been playing flute for years. It got to a point where it's kind of like people were kind of just like fit like sneaking and filming me play. No doubt. In, yeah. in space, like in in the public, like just out like I might be at Starbucks getting a coffee. I'm waiting on my coffee. I might just start playing somewhere like go yeah. outside and play and then people would just film me and then post it and then like one person actually came up to me on the street and it was like man you know it's a thing like you know we it's a game almost like we're trying to find you and trying to film you playing yeah. this flute and that that like, kind of was sucky because it was kind of like a where's waldo kind of thing where's waldo <laughs> like like yeah a game <laughs> exactly and i didn't like that because i mean okay. they, they just kept getting little nicks of me just kind of messing around you know mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so i just felt like uh I'd like to share it on a wide scale. Like I'd really like to play, but it was really for me. Like I would just walk for hours and I'm a walker. I love to walk. So I would just walk and play. Well, let's, let's get into this album,
4: man. Cause I, I want to make sure we spend some time talking about it. So let's get to the song titles. Cause you got some, Real clever wordplay going on in these <laughs> song titles. I mean, they feel like part confessional, it's ironic, it's mind-altering and, and all like super humorous. I would really love if you could read some of them for us, starting with the first song title, because I think it really
5: addresses the elephant in the room right off top. For sure. So the first song, the the title is... I swear, I really wanted to make a rap album, but this is literally the way the wind blew me this time. And so, <laughs> for me, like, I, I already knew how people would be looking at it, and I didn't want to, like, I do not want to troll people. I didn't want people to think, oh, this Andre 3000 album is coming, and you play right. it, and like, oh, man, no verses. So even <laughs> actually on the packaging, you know, you'll see it. It says... Warning, no bars. So it's kind of uh-huh. like it's it's letting you know what it is off the top. Mm-hmm. But also like this is true, man. Like like I really like you understand. Like I I love rap music because it was a part of my youth. So I I would love to be out here rapping with everybody rapping because it's almost like fun of being on the playground playing. Like I would love to be out here playing with everybody, but it's like it's just not happening for me. So mm-hmm. this is the realest thing that's coming right now. Not to say that I, I would never do it again, but mm-hmm. it's, those are not the things that are coming right now and I have to present what's given to me. Tell me if I'm wrong, but I also imagine
4: that the legacy of OutKast, like as great as it is, has maybe in some ways
5: also kinda like weighed you down at times or, or blanketed your creativity at nah, times. Nah, nah. It catapulted no? me man. Like like outcast was just an incubator to to explore, man. Like I like I'm saying, like I couldn't have done I couldn't have done a lot of the things if Big Boy didn't support it. Let's jump to the track three. Um, if you can, if you can say the title for that one, that'd be good. Okay, so track three is titled "That Night in Hawaii" when I turned into a panther and started making these low register purring tones that I couldn't control. It was wild.
4: <laughs> <laughs> now nah, i ain't gonna lie man this this sounds like a straight up ayahuasca
5: trip or that something is like exactly that. what i was talking about <laughs> okay yeah well you gotta you gotta tell me the story behind this night man yeah i was i was actually in hawaii and it was my second night of the first time i've i'd ever taken Hawa- uh, ayahuasca and we did uh-huh. it like a three-night kind of phase but the first night was inviting and beautiful and, and like the most powerful love and connection with all things I've ever felt in my life. Mm -hmm. The second night was different (laughs) (laughs) and everybody knows that I will do you that way. Uh, so the second night, um, my stomach was hurting. My mouth contorted like a Panther and I actually turned into a Panther and I was doing like, like, like that kind of thing. And, uh, I actually turned into a panther and doing this thing called toning. Toning is another way of purging. And toning is where you make these vibrational noises that you can't control. And it started playing me like an instrument. And so I started as a panther and then I would do these long kind of tones and started changing the notes. So um, And I can only mimic it. So on the album, I'm mimicking. But mm-hmm. the funny thing was In, in the I session I was like Damn I wish I had my phone So I can record this. Cause like <laughs> It'd be so dope It kind of okay. sounds Something like this so, so it started playing me In a way that goes like And it's kind of playing me Like changing notes And I'm not doing it And it holds you for so long I'm like Where's this breath coming from? So that's what I'm talking about on that title. Was it scary at the time or was it like, how, how did it make you feel? At it was kind of in- intriguing at the time because, I mean, the, the, the sound listener in me, I'm digging the sound. But mm-hmm. at the same time, the shaman is coming. He comes over and he's, you know, of me. And, you know, he's saying, oh, that's like 20 years of therapy happening right now. Hmm. That's
4: deep. Talk about your passion for instrumental music, like how it started and 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 how you
5: got off into that that bag. So more so. Well, it's really funny. Like as a youngster, I, well, I associated jazz music with old people. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm just I'm just being honest. Like as a as yeah, yeah. a as a rapper, I associated jazz music with old people and elevator music, like because it had become that. And here's what's hilarious too. Like every generation will will do that. So it, what's funny is at some point in the future, people want to listen to trap music and be like, "Oh, that's nice." <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm being honest because yeah. it, it happens because right. society moves forward and it always mm-hmm. does. But I, I remember when I was like about 20, and I got into actually music and like and producing and like really understand. And I start and I always like like some songs and I'm like, "Whoa, okay, like." I mean, they, the pop songs that I that I got into, uh, like some of the, uh, the Take 5 yeah. or the uh, Chuck Mangione, like I remember that, like mm. playing on the radio as a kid and like humming the melodies. And I was like, oh, OK, so I'm getting affected by, you know, these, these instrumental casts. And so once I started mm-hmm. really getting into it and getting into it, I'm like, hold up, like jazz was the rap of that time like the like these dudes they were they were smoking they were they were doing heroin they were in clubs they were like <laughs> like trading like what we trade versus they they trading like solos and like you really get into it and you really understand what they were doing and how rebellious what they were doing mm. you were like man this is the ultimate and i know from like watching my heroes grow older that your your rhythm mm-hmm. is kind of it it ages you in a certain way and your vocals age you in a certain way so I was always trying to figure out a way that I can continue like you can continue rapping for the rest of your life till you're 90 years old mm-hmm. but I've always tried to find a way that was ageless mm. and when you're listening to a player a lot of times like an instrumental player you may not know their age mm. and I, and I kind of love that in a way and not that there's anything wrong with age and I think we have a thing where we kind of run away from age like I, I love that I'm 48 now like if I could go back to be in 21, I would not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's just the truth. Like, yeah. Sometimes I look in the mirror, I'm like, man, you have silver hair. And I'm like, that's <laughs> so awesome. <laughs> you know lie. what I mean? It's like, I'm yeah. a silverback gorilla.
4: My conversation with Andre 3000 about his new album, New Blue Sun, will continue right after this short break.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Holmes.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and T-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com NPR and use code NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Visit Myrtle Beach sun-drenched days, live music every night, and 60 miles of uninterrupted coastline, Myrtle Beach was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Combine that with the aroma of fresh seafood, southern classics, and local low-country cuisine from over 2,000 restaurants. You belong at the beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Shopify. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.
4: Let's get into some flute talk, man. We, we started talking flutes at the beginning a little bit. Like you said, you play a digital wind instrument on, on this song and several other songs. How, how many flutes do you own? Uh,
5: maybe about 30, 30, 40 flutes. Wow. Okay. I yeah, did not expect I, that. I, <laughs> yeah. But I have, I have to say like, um, it's, it's because like I started with one style of flute, the the style of flute that I started with was introduced to me by Cassia. Uh, Cassia, she's a world-class surfer and she was playing this flute at this breathwork class. And soon as she started playing, my ears popped up, I'm like, what is that sound? And I had to go up to her and ask her, like, like what is that? And so uh she introduced me to my flute master, the guy that makes my flute, Guillermo Martinez. And that style of flute that he makes was my intro into flutes. And mm-hmm. so like I was living in New York at a at a point, and so when I get into a Uber or get into a taxi, I always play. Uh and so what started to happen like depending on the taxi driver, like whatever nationality they were, like if they were Chinese or if they were African or East Mm -hmm. Indian driver, they would always turn around and be like, oh, that reminds me of my country. Like, oh man, have you ever heard of the Bansuri flute, which is an Indian flute? Or, oh, have you heard of the Ney flute, you know, which is Egyptian or Turkish flute? And so I'm kind of getting schooled by different cultures on different flutes. So when I say I have a lot of flutes, um, I have most mostly my style of flutes uh, made by Guillermo, but I started to just collect a lot of different flutes from a lot of different countries. Every culture has a flute. The flute is the first instrument ever after the drum. The drum came first, mm-hmm. and then flute. So flute is the first instrument where we actually heard a musical tone mm-hmm. or a note. You know, so it's always interesting to me about flutes in that way and one thing I like about flutes and wood, wooden flutes mm. in particular is it's the closest to the human voice out of all the instruments mm. and I think that's why I kind of gravitated towards it because when you're hearing a flute player or, or a saxophonist like you're actually hearing the wind of that human. It's one thing to talk
4: about your your evolution as an artist but you know even as a person you've been through a lot that Honestly, I don't I don't know if fans always remember to take into account when we make like these selfish demands what feel like selfish demands for more music um, from from artists that we love. But, you know, in your case, you in the last decade, you lost both your mom and your dad and and more recently your stepdad, who. I know you've said was really an, an anchoring person in your life.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: That's a lot of grief, man, for 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 anybody to hold, especially back to back. Like, how how did managing all of that? Did it make music or or just your art and, and craft feel any less essential or more essential
5: in any kind of way? No, uh, I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that. Um, it just kind of makes you. Feel- just remember things it makes you Mm -hmm. remember the times that you and your mom had or the times you and your dad had or you know the times that your stepdad told you certain things so Mm -hmm. i just had a conversation with guillermo my my flute maker and he was telling me that uh there's a, a responsibility that comes with flute playing when i first started playing maybe two years after i had my flute I went back to Guillermo to kind of get a checkup on my flute and, you know, to get it tuned and clean and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And he kind of pulls me to the side. and He's like, hey, I, I noticed that you're really into these flutes. I have to tell you, like, I not not, not a warning, but it's, I have to mm-hmm. tell you that there will come a time when you when you play and people will cry. And it's mm-hmm. happened to me like a few times now, like it's like grown men, like crying, like uh, one time I'm in a taxi. And this, uh, I'm, I once I get in, I usually start playing, and this guy turns around crying. And he was like, "When you play, he's like, my mother died last night, and when you play, it makes it feel like she's right here in the seat with me." Wow. And so, you know, we were having this conversation, me and Guillermo, and he was like, "Yeah," he was like, uh, "I get asked to play at funerals now, or or when somebody know they're about to pass, and you know, the last days. Sometimes the family will call me to play." And I was like, "Whoa, that's crazy!" Because I was recently asked to play at a funeral, and I denied it. Mm-hmm. And so when Virgil passed, his family asked, "Would I play?" Wow. At the funeral, and I and I denied it, but, mm-hmm. but on, only because I did. I felt like I would be a distraction, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. it would be, you know, like this. You know, I, I don't know. I just I just felt like um, it would have taken away from the moment. And so when I told Guillermo, he was like, yeah, sometimes you have to look at it now as a responsibility to play. They ask you to play for a reason. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I just wanted to uh, lay that out because um, when my mom passed, I don't know, I had this urge to play. But I wasn't even playing flute back then. I just wanted to. I think I was more on guitar at that point. Okay, And uh, I just did not. I, I don't think I could go through with it. But um. I don't know. I think so I think s- New Orleans has it best. So like, yeah. I think the funeral kind of the way we do funerals, I think is really antiquated and sad. Yeah. I think, I think we need to party more or like celebration. Yeah, I think New Orleans got it. Thank you, bro. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, man.
1: Thanks again to my colleague Rodney Carmichael. You can find his full hour and thirteen minute interview with Andre Three Thousand at NPR.org. Andre's new album, New Blue Sun, is out now. Hey, Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany.
2: Hey, Brittany. This is Felipe from New York. Grammy nominations just came out this year, and I was stoked to see I'm Just Ken making the list. But I was also wondering what you thought about who else has been nominated this year.
1: Thanks. Hey, Felipe. Thank you so much for calling in with this question. You know, when I am thinking about these Grammy nominations this year, only one name comes to mind. And that is my queen, the best, America's sweetheart, Victoria Monet. If you do not know this woman's name, I want me to tell you, After years of writing for artists like Fifth Harmony and Ariana Grande, mind you, she's won a Grammy for Ariana Grande before. She wrote some of the songs that you and I have loved over these years. Thank you, Next, Seven Rings. But Victoria Monet, this year, with the debut of Jaguar 2, has really come into her own lane as an artist. Now, I'll say I've been listening to her for about five, six years now. Even if you go on Twitter and you type in my handle and Victoria Monet, like probably eight or nine tweets come up where I'm just like, I love her music. She's making the anthems. She's taking it. Okay, I've been talking about this woman nonstop. I'm just glad that the rest of America has caught up with me. She is also a new mother. She took time from her career to have her first child. And it has been amazing to see her embrace motherhood while also going after her dreams at the same time it's such an inspiration like victoria monet is the real deal i am so glad to see her getting the love she deserves i'm hoping that my girl is gonna be standing backstage at that press podium with two arms full of awards victoria we love you girl come on the show Anyway, Felipe, thank you so much for calling in with this question. It gave me an excuse to talk about one of my favorite things in the world, good music. I hope you have a great weekend. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood Alexis Williams Liam McBain Corey Antonio Rose This episode was edited by Jessica Plachek
0: Bilal Qureshi
1: Engineering support came from Phil Edfors Our executive producer is
2: Verilynn Williams.
1: Our VP of Programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of Programming is
2: Anya Grundman.
1: All right. That's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture X Card. When you book through Capital One Travel using the Venture X Card, you earn 10X miles on hotels and rental cars and 5X miles on flights, and you earn unlimited 2X miles on all other purchases. Plus, receive a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. The Venture X Card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Lisa, in collaboration with West Elm. Discover the new natural hybrid mattress, expertly crafted from natural latex and certified safe foams, designed with your health and the planet in mind. Visit leesa.com to learn more.
3: All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it.